Oh man, it is so good to have uh, Alan back. Um, it's been a couple of weeks since we've had Alan at the church. He was preaching at some other churches before he went to Australia. And so it almost feels like we need to welcome him back in membership today. He says, I do. He's in. So uh, it's so great to have Alan back, and it's uh, great to see Akani and them back from the States. Um, trust they had a, a fruitful time being with uh, the Max and so many others that we know and love. And uh, it's great to have you guys back as well. Now, I'm thankful that you are here this morning. Because before we dive into God's Word, we can tell you that it's someone's special birthday today. And so if you know a guy called Hamilton... You know Hamilton, he's one of our elders here at the church, it's his birthday today. So please make sure you grab him and give him a big hug. He loves hugs, he loves it, he says. So if you don't tackle him on the way out, he's going to be very sad. So make sure you give him lots of hugs as he, uh, as he leaves. So Hamilton, we love you brother and we're thankful for you and uh, your ministry here at the church. Okay, well, we are starting a new series today about why do I love the local church? Why do I love the local church? And I'm thankful that you're here because, let's be honest, you could have been doing a lot of other things this morning. You could have met with friends and maybe have some breakfast with someone that you haven't seen in a long time. I mean, you could have been running or biking, even in this cold weather, doing some kind of exercise because there's just not been time this week. Maybe you could have slept in late. Catch up on some of that precious sleep that you're longing for, or maybe even recovering from a late evening last night. You could be working on assignments and projects with deadlines, study for exams that are coming up, and you could be using all this time to fix stuff in the home. Maybe get you that laundry you've been wanting to this whole week. So why did you rather come to church? Why did you rather decide to come to church this morning? Why not just stay home and watch all this stuff online and sit in the comfort of your own bed where you have access to so many better preachers out there? Why come to church? Now, if we look at the world right now, then you see that it is, there are many churches that have in fact become museums. Hindu temples, mosques, or even trendy bars and restaurants. In fact, I was reading this week that in places like Europe, a study indicated that church attendance is declining faster than ever before. The one foundation that did this research said that approximately 41% of teens and young adults said they're done with the church. In the age group of 29 to 39, at least one in every three people wanted to stop going to church. Of the people part of the survey, only 17% went to church once a month. And in South Africa, our very religious country, the stats don't look much better. More and more people are losing their confidence in the church because of being hurt by the church or seeing it as this institution that must serve their needs rather than people growing and serving God. 
And the younger generations do think of the church as a museum full of old people, historical things that do not relate to them. So more and more you have all these different people who have different attitudes toward the church. I mean, you have people, they say they love Jesus. They say they love Jesus, but they have a different view of the church. Because on the one hand, you have those people who say they love Jesus, but they think all they need is their Bible. They don't really have to go to church to have a relationship with Jesus. They're happy and content to be on their own. Because essentially, my faith is a personal matter. It's about me and God. But then you have people who say they love the church and they love Jesus, but they don't want to commit to one local church. They love going to different churches because the one has better worship, the other has better preaching, the other has more people, their age, their culture, their language, where they can fellowship and connect. Then, of course, you're, you have those who are just looking for the experience. They say they love Jesus and the church, but all they really want is more time with their hands on the air and their eyes closed because they want a genuine experience with Jesus. And if they can't get that, they're not really interested in going to church. I mean, of course, there's the attitude of the person who wants some kind of deliverance, right? I mean, we know this is very true in Africa. They say they love Jesus and the church, but all they really want is this quick fix to their problems, and they think the church is the place to get it. So that is why one of the goals we have for this series is to help you evaluate why you love the local church and why it should take center stage in your life. One of the goals of this series is that we want to equip you to engage with people who have been hurt by the church, who are skeptical about the church, and who have never really been part of a healthy church, and share your own biblical passions for the church, and therefore help them see what God is busy doing in and through His church. And for that to happen, we all need to stop and think why we love the church. Why should church not just be this add-on to my life, but the primary focus that shapes the rest of my life? And so here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about why do we love the church. And the first biblical reason why we love the church is because God does. I want us to see today that God loves the church. And because He has always had a plan for the church, and nothing can stop that plan. Because God is the one who gave His life for the church. And we're going to look at several different passages today. Usually, you know, we walk our way through a book of the Bible like we did with Galatians, verse by verse. But this series will allow us to get a big picture view of how committed God is to the church and how that gives us confidence as we commit our lives to the church. So let's maybe just ask one more time the Lord's help. 
and pray and ask Him to give us a kind of affection and love for Him and the church as we consider now His love for us. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank You that we can open up Your Word here today. Father, I for one recognize the magnitude of this message. This big plan You have. And Father... It is humbling to think of our own attitudes towards your bride, the church. And so I ask, Lord, now as we open up your word and as we talk about so many things here today, that we would work hard at listening. And that you would really help us to investigate our own hearts and see why it is that we are here. What is it that we do when we commit our lives to the church? Because we want to see your love for us. Through your son Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been to the east of Pretoria, there's this massive half-built mall just standing there. They're between Elardus Park and Morlera Park in the east. It's a building that is less than halfway through the construction process. And for years and years... This half-built mall has just been sitting there doing nothing. And every time I drive by it, I think, well, someone had a plan, but that plan didn't work out. Someone started this massive project, but they didn't finish it. And it's sad because it seems to be such a waste. I mean, someone designed it. Someone drew up the building plan, someone even started the construction of it, all that concrete and pillars, multiple levels, but for some reason, who knows, politics, lack of finances, the building project wasn't completed. Now get this, when it comes to the church, the Bible tells us we can know for sure that God loves the church because God has a plan for the church. God has a plan for the church. In fact, God has always had a plan for the church, even before God created this world. Look at with me for a moment at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Paul is writing to Titus, where he's describing his ministry. And it's a ministry that is focused on evangelism and salvation. And just here in the opening few verses... Paul basically, in a nutshell, is describing God's plan for the church. He writes and says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. You see, as someone who has had direct interaction with Jesus, Paul wants the next generation of leaders to understand what God is doing through the church. What is God's ongoing plan for the church? And so just here in these opening few verses... He talks about God's eternal plan for the church from election. You see it when he says, those who have been chosen by God. To salvation, talking about the knowledge of the truth. 
to sanctification, which accords with godliness. And then he talks about final glory in verse 2, in the hope of eternal life. Paul is confident that even the pagan people in Crete and other places in this world will be saved because God is the one with a plan. But look at actually when God made this plan, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. In other words, before God spoke and said, let there be light, Before God spoke and said, let us make man in our image. He already determined to start and finish his big redemptive plan to make sinners like you and me part of his church. He already knew before there was anything to see who the people will be that he would bring the faith to godliness and to glory. We know Paul talks about this in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 4, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, Even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundations of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. You see, whatever people might think about the church right now, God still has a plan to save people, to grow people, because He made that plan before He even made people. And the church are the chosen people, which is the outworking of God's eternal plan. Because you know, as you read the book of Genesis, the focus was on the world. God chose for Himself a people through which He wants to bless the whole world. He therefore raises up Abraham, eventually this nation Israel, so that through these chosen people, God can bless the rest of the world. Because through Israel, God would show everyone what holiness is, what His authority is, what worship is, as we think about the temple and all the sacrifices, And specifically, how much we need Jesus and to be made right with God by faith. That's why one man says, if you are not heavenly minded, you are irrelevant to the plan of God on earth. Right? Think about this. If you are not heavenly minded, you are irrelevant to the plan of God on earth. And what he means is that As we read our Bibles, we see that the purpose of the church is to solve the problems we find in Genesis. This problem of sin and separation between us and God. Which means if the church goes in a different direction than God's plan, then it makes that church irrelevant, right? See, in this age, God's focus is now on the church. So if you want to be relevant to the plan of God, focus on the church. Because God has always had a plan to use the nation of Israel and the church of Jesus Christ to help answer the question people have about who He is. 
and what he's busy doing right now. That's why Paul goes on to say, Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. In other words, all of us who were lost, who felt like we didn't belong, who did not have a relationship with God, are no longer alone. We are no longer strangers who don't feel like we don't fit in, but we are fellow citizens with all the people who have gone before us, who are next to us, who have placed their complete trust and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which as a result makes us part of the household of God. Because the promise God made way before in the beginning of creation is now being realized through the local church. People from all different backgrounds and cultures and languages are being united by Jesus into one family. And this is something that was a mystery. This plan and how this will happen was a mystery, Paul says. But he says the mystery is no longer a mystery. Ephesians 3, 8-10 To me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light what? For everyone, what is the plan? What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? Here it is. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now you've got to stop at least a little bit and think about that. Paul says that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are looking at God's great plan of salvation and what do they see? I mean, God could have displayed His wisdom by taking the the angels and these heavenly authorities into the deepest, darkest parts of the ocean and show Him His great creation, something that maybe we've never seen before. But He doesn't do that. Because there is something that will display His wisdom even better. And so where does Paul say that God planned to display His manifold wisdom? Right here, through the church. Through the church. The all-powerful, all-wise God of the universe wants to display His wisdom to those in heaven through the grace-saturated, God-fearing local church. Because He has a plan that was made before the ages began, and the church plays a fundamental role in that plan now that Jesus has come. Because in the next verse, Ephesians 3.11, Paul says, This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you want to know how God is going to fix this problem we all have of separation between us and Him because of sin and not being close to Him like Adam and Eve were before sin and how He's going to rescue people like He promised that He would rescue, then God says, keep your eyes on the church. Look at the church. 
Focus your time and attention and affections on the church because the wisdom of God is put on display when you have French-speaking Congolese people being united to Tsonga-speaking South Africans. Where Afrikaans people are united to Shona people. A household of people who experience the presence of God in their lives because together, as the Bible describes, we are God's temple. We know the New Testament church is the counterpart of the Old Testament temple. Which means the church is the spiritual dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, the place where God manifests His glory on earth most clearly. Because it's the focal point of true worship and spiritual life for those who have been chosen by God and saved by God. You see, just like that empty mall had an architect and maybe someone else who started the building process, when it comes to the church, God is not just the architect, but He's the builder and sustainer of His temple. Therefore, back in Ephesians 2.20, Paul says, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Which, if we are listening, should help us to see that I can know God loves the church because His plan is still in motion. His plan is still in motion. The church is still a work in progress. God is still at work uniting people to Himself and to one another through the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is purifying His church where it needs to be purified. And so again, Regardless of what you might think of the church or have experienced in the church, here's what you can know for sure. God has a plan. You can also know that nothing is going to stop that plan. Because not only did God promise that He will fix this world and the problem of sin through Jesus, being manifested through the local church, He's also promised that He will build His church and nothing will stop Him. I know God loves the church because number one, He has a plan. And now secondly, God promised that nothing will stop His plan. Nothing will stop His plan, which means God's people belong to a cause that cannot fail. God's people belong to a cause that cannot fail. Because what did Jesus say to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, we know this verse so well. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. First obvious question, who is building the church here? God says it's Him. He promises that He's going to do it. Which means as Jesus was starting to give the disciples a hint of what is to come, Jesus here in this context talks about how He will be the one who will build His church. Because Acts 2 and Pentecost is still coming. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is still coming. 
And so in a prophetic sense, Jesus already indicates that the success of the church is not going to be because of how great these apostles are. The growth and advancement of the church or any other biblical church is not because the leaders are so strategic or such great visionaries. We're not trying to build the church by ourselves. Because we know if we do, we need to recognize that our human efforts will only produce human results. But it's when we recognize that Jesus is the one building His church that we see how His divine efforts produce divine results. That's why I like how one man says, it's not faithful believers who build God's church. It's Christ who builds His church through faithful believers. Because God now works in the church and through the church as He's building His church. And this is a guaranteed ongoing process. John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You read further on, book of Acts. Come to Acts 13, 48. And I could have referenced many passages, but this is an example, Acts 13, 48, and what is happening. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Because what did they hear? They heard about God's plan of salvation and how they can be part of that plan through Jesus. Back in verse 47, I have made you, Paul and Barnabas, a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. You see, those who are appointed to eternal life hear the word of God and the plan of God and the salvation that is available in Jesus Christ and they rejoice. They hear the word and they fall in love with God and His church. Because the building process for Jesus is an intimate one. Because He says, I will build my church. My church. Which means the church belongs to Jesus, right? Which means as the one who is the architect, the builder, the owner, and the Lord of His church, we who are part of His church by faith can be assured that we are the personal possession of Jesus and we forever have His love and care. It means even as we look at our own weakness and failings and as God sees our weakness and failings, He is not ashamed to call us brothers. Because there's great intimacy between Jesus and His followers as He's busy building His church. Hebrews 2.11 For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have the same, have one source. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Because as 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And what do you think God does for those He intimately loves and cares about? 
The Bible says he jealously guards them because his chosen people are the apple of his eye. God says to Israel through the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 2 verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Which is basically like God saying, Touch my people and you touch me. Touch my people and you touch me. Because His chosen people have His love and His commitment and thus we can be confident that as we give ourselves for the good of the church, we experience His intimate love even more. The love that guards us against false teaching. A love that guards us against our own sinful desires. A love that guards us against thinking that the church is not just a random thing. It's not that big of a deal. Because ultimately Jesus says the church is invincible. The church of Jesus is invincible. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. See, it's easy to be tempted into thinking that as we look at the state of the church all over the world, that the church in some sense is failing. It's always easier to see the negatives rather than the positives. Basic principle in life. And even as people here in our own church turn their back on Jesus and leave the church, indicate that maybe somehow the church is failing. But then we neglect to think that all that God is actually busy doing. Because nowhere else does Jesus promise the success of anything except the church. He doesn't even promise the success of the non-profit One Hope and the, the orphan care ministry that we have. He doesn't even promise the success of the African Bible Training Center that are teaching people about how to handle God's Word. He promised that He will build the church. And so what's interesting is you look at the words here, Gates and Hades. Because Gates give you the picture of being behind bars, being captive. And Hades is typically associated with Sheol, which can be described as death. Which then indicates to us that not even death has the power to hold God's chosen people captive. Why? Because the gates of death are not strong enough for Jesus who conquered sin and death for the church. And the truth about Jesus overcoming sin and death was the very message that Peter and the other apostles proclaimed for the advancement of the church. These guys were essentially preaching nothing will stop the church of Jesus. Acts 2.24 God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Which means for us that as governments crumble and fail, as your business even crumbles and fails, as our power supply company crumbles and fails, we can know that there is something that will never fail and that is the church of Jesus Christ. Because not even death will stop Jesus from building His beloved church. 
Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that every single group of people that, or place that calls themselves a church is guaranteed to be successful. Jesus is not promising success and prosperity to every congregation out there. But what He is promising is that the universal body of believers who function rightly under His headship will have a visible testimony in this world as long as there is this world. Because if you're reading your Bibles and you see how God is at work through the church in the book of Acts, then you see how it brings clarity to the rest of the New Testament. Think of 1 Peter. Peter writes about biblical hope. And after Jesus leaves and goes back to heaven... We are given the Holy Spirit, and Peter writes to show us that the church is the primary institution of hope in this world, especially in times of suffering. Think of 2 Peter, where the false teachers are attacking that very hope. Which means if a church is not pointing you forward to what is coming, then honestly it's not a church. If the church is busy making it all about you and how great you can be, then it's not a church. The book of Jude. The book of Jude gives us the practical advice on how to deal with these kinds of false teachers. Because the best way to defend is to attack. And so Jude says, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. The book of James The book of James is all about wisdom and it became clear to the Jews that Gentiles do not have to become like them. So the Jews are told to back off from the Gentiles essentially and the Jews want to know then how should they relate to Gentiles. And the book of James helps us to see how. The wisdom needed for relating. Think of the two Corinthian letters which Paul wrote. He helps us to see how the gospel And the church can change a pagan society like Corinth. A place that was known for living for instant gratification. And how important it is for the church to be united now that there's this Christian freedom. Jews and Gentiles in the same family. We saw in Galatians that if you get the gospel wrong, you will get everything else wrong as well. And the church is gone. Because we don't treat people differently based on their heritage and background, but based on our unity in Christ. Romans shows us that God is not done with the Jews yet. It's not just about the Gentiles. Because our true identity is found in Christ, and part of that identity is realizing how sinful you are, and how God's wrath is against you, but through the gospel and what Jesus has done, we are given this new identity. That transcends the color of our skin and the language we speak. In First and Second Thessalonians, Paul is writing about the end times. And knowing that the church won't fail. Having the confidence that the church won't fail helps us now to work hard and hold on until Jesus comes back. Ephesians helps us to see why the church does what it does. And how it should be done according to God's great plan and wisdom. Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus 
It's all about handing over the responsibility of this, this great mission we have as a church and what kind of leadership is important to God. Specifically, Titus helps us see that discipleship and what that should look like in the church. Where people in the church are pouring into each other. And then the book of Hebrews then helps us to see that Jesus is not done working. He is busy interceding for His church right now. And so as we read our Bibles, we can get more and more excited about God's plan and His promise that nothing will stop His plan because of the love and care and guidance He pours into the church. And so we know there's a lot of people out there who are trying to sell you some sort of guarantee all the time. Who will make all kinds of empty promises. But let's face it, actions speak louder than words, right? Because how do I know God loves the church? He has a plan for the church. He promises nothing will stop Him building His church. And now finally, He was willing to back that up because He gave His life for the church. He gave his life for the church. I was speaking to someone recently and he was saying, he doesn't really get it. Why does Jesus love us so much? And it's a fair question if we think about how messed up we are and how often we love things of the world more than we love him. And if we think about God's plan then we recognize that the Father so loved the Son that God the Father promised Jesus a people that will be with Him in glory. That promise He made before the foundation of the world that we already spoke about was a promise of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's why we see that when Jesus prays in John 17, 24, He says, Father... I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. See, God promised Jesus, the church, a people who are justified and sanctified and glorified because of this intense love between the Trinity. And it's the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Revelation 13, 7 says. The chosen people of God are a gift of love from the Father to the Son. And so as you read passages like Ephesians 5, 25, you recognize that the Bible uses language that describes the church as the bride of Christ. And how does Jesus respond to the love of the Father as we think about His love for the church? He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Jesus gave Himself up for the ones He was promised. He laid down His life for the church because He loves the church, because the church is not just this nice idea We are the bride of Jesus. And so in the context of talking about marriage, we notice that Jesus sees the church as beautiful. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This past Friday, we were at the wedding of Benji and Yanda. And when the bride walks down the aisle, what is it that the groom sees in that moment? Does he see her sin and her failings in that moment? All he can see is his love and beauty for her. And Jesus loves the church so much that he is willing to give his life for his bride in order to make her beautiful. And the Apostle John describes the church in Revelation 19.8 as being clothed in fine linen, as being bright and pure. Because the fullness of God's purpose is to give a beautiful bride, the church, you and me, to the Son. And for that to happen, Jesus responds. Jesus responds to the love of the Father by coming into this world and pay the penalty for our sin in order that we can be washed as white as snow. Jesus is like, I'm all in. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him, him who sent me. Which means as Jesus is giving His life for us on the cross, He is committed to the plan of God for the church and the guarantee of success of the church because of His deep, perfect, divine love that expresses itself within the Trinity. John 15.3 Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus was willing to do the unthinkable because of the love he has for the Father and for the church. And so ask yourself, do you think the church is valuable to God? Do you really believe the church is valuable to God? Isn't that why in Acts 20, 28, the leaders of the church are told, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus wants leaders in the church to be careful in protecting and leading and caring for his bride because he gave his life for her. Because the church is to be a place where people are washed with the word and where people grow to become more like Jesus. Because do you see the, the role of the Holy Spirit here in this text? It is the Holy Spirit who has worked in the lives of men in the church and made them overseers. It's the same Holy Spirit who is conforming people into the image of Jesus. Because not only does Jesus lay down his life and love for the church, but God also determined that the church would be made like his son. Which again, if you take a step back and you look at the big picture again, you realize that God has a plan. He is building his church without fail. And part of that plan is to make me more like Jesus. 
As one man says, the church will emerge from all her trials triumphant, glorious, spotlessly arrayed to meet her bridegroom. How can we not rejoice in the prospect of that? That is why the church helps us to make sense of our trials. That is why the church helps us to make sense of our sin. That is why the church helps us make sense of our value. That is why the church helps us to make sense of God's unending love for us. And so regardless of what you and I might think or feel about the church, we know that God has a plan for the church. And nothing will stop that plan. Because Jesus gave His life to make it happen. Which means, when I am tempted to make other things in this life more of a priority than the church, I need to stop and think, why do I love the church? Why do I really love the church? Is it just this routine thing we do week in and week out? Because God loves sinners and He's baking, making them beautiful like Jesus. And the church is where His focus is right now. And if we ever wonder how much or why God loves us, we can look at God accomplishing His great plan of fixing everything and how He does that through the local church. And so, yes, you could rather be sleeping right now, you could be watching TV. You could be catching up on homework. But if you have experienced the love of Jesus in your life, then you realize you are part of something way bigger than you. Something divine. A building process where you recognize that every time you gather to sing, every time you gather to study God's Word, to serve, to give, to fellowship, and evangelize and reach out to others, You are part of God's plan to build His kingdom. Because God doesn't build His kingdom apart from the church and His church apart from the kingdom. And that's why someone like Charles Spurgeon said, the church is the most loved entity in this world. Do you believe it? So let me ask you again. Why do you love the local church? Is it fair to say that your attitude toward the church is a reflection of your attitude toward Jesus? God has called us to Himself because He promised that He would. And He is still busy calling people to Himself. And He does it through the ministry of the church, His chosen people. Because nothing can stop Jesus from building His church. And so as you sit here today and you look at the mess that is in your life, then do you see how important church is to Jesus? Do you see how much Jesus loves the church? Do you see that you can be part of His bride by being washed and purified when you turn from a life of selfishness and sin and place your complete trust in the one who totally committed, is totally committed to the plan of God and the success of the church? Because you can realize if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 
then you are a testimony that God's plan is real and it will not fail. You, we, as a church, are a realization of the prophetic word of God. This church is a realization of the prophetic promised word of God. And so as we start this series, let us evaluate our own attitude toward the church. Let us see if we are in line with God and what He's doing in this world right now. One thing my wife and I have been listening to and talking about this week is we do what we do because we want what we want. Think about that. We do what we do because we want what we want. What do you want? Do you want the church? Do you want Jesus? If you want something else, it's got to change. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your love for us. Lord, we recognize today's message is just so much bigger than our minds. There's so much more we could say. But thank you, Lord, for just reminding us that you have this great plan. This great plan that was made before the foundations of the earth. A plan that involves your people, your chosen people, turning in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf. A plan to unite people from all backgrounds and cultures and languages. A plan where we get to gather together as your temple. A place where you get to dwell. Because the problem of sin has been dealt with. Because Jesus so loves the church that he gave his life for it. Father, help us to do an honest assessment on our own hearts of our attitude and our affections toward the church. And we recognize, Lord, many people have grown up not knowing a healthy biblical church. We recognize people have been hurt by the church. We recognize that even as we gather, we are not perfect people. We are still sinners who need Jesus every single day. But thank you, Lord, that we can hold fast to your promise that you will build your church. And nothing will stop it. Nothing will stop it. If there's one thing in this world that is certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that your church will succeed. And Father, you are coming back for your people, for your bride. And until then, Lord, help us to see the value of gathering and committing and pouring into each other's lives as we study your word together, as we sing praises, as we fellowship, as we serve. Because that is the means you use to make us more like Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are so committed to your church, even when we are not. And we pray this in your name. Amen.